Hello, 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 and welcome to Data Futurology, the podcast where we speak with leaders in the data science space and we hear their stories, their lessons learned, so you can benefit from their pain and you can further your career in a much faster and more efficient way. My name is Felipe Flores. I am your host. Thank you so much for being here. I hope that you're having a wonderful week. Today, we are speaking with Christoph Molnar. He is based in Munich in Germany, and he is an interpretable machine learning researcher. You may know Christoph. He literally wrote the book on interpretable machine learning, which I'll put a link to it on the show notes. It is freely available on his GitHub page. So he's done it in R Markdown or Bookdown, I think it is. So it's freely available, all chapters, all explanations. The book is called Interpretable Machine Learning, a guide for making black box models explainable. He has been working on this for a long time, tells us his professional background, the journey of writing the book. And one of the things that I loved about the book, which obviously comes up in the discussion, is that his focus on model agnostic explanations. So what that means is that regardless of which machine learning model you use in your work, if you apply the methods that he describes in his book, you can get better explanations of how those machine learning methods are are making the decisions that they're doing. He covers how to avoid correlation. What are the main traps and how to avoid them? It's an extremely interesting well-thought-out book. Obviously a hot topic at the moment. He is the man to speak to about it. So here's the interview with Christoph. I hope you enjoy it. Hi, this is Felipe. Today I'm speaking with Christoph. Christoph, Hi, thank you for taking the time. Thanks for having me. Uh, too kind. Great to have you on the show. At the beginning of the interviews, I always like to ask guests, what was it about data or data science that appealed to you? What was it that brought you into the space in the first place? It kind of started for me after high school. So I was thinking like, what should I do? And it was for me clear that I want to study. And I actually didn't go into data or statistics, data science in the beginning, but started with electrical engineering one semester. And I wasn't happy with it. So then came another semester of pharmacy. I also wasn't too happy. And then I thought like, okay, what do you want to really study? And my issue or my problem was that I didn't want to decide at the beginning of my studies in what sector or what type of industry I want to work in later. So I was looking for something that gives me an opportunity to work or to decide later kind of. And it was clear to me that I wanted to do something with math. So then I looked into uh, statistics and the more I looked into it and the more I liked it because it's a toolbox that you learn there and you still don't have to decide where you want to work afterwards because you can work in medicine and insurance or wherever you want to work. And the first time I heard about statistics, it was like, it sounded boring, but the more I learned about it, the more I liked it and also started then studying it and finally also finished uh, my studies. Uh, yeah, so this was for me the beginning of how I got into the field. And yeah, since then, I didn't regret my decision. <laughs> Good, bad. And when you were studying statistics, what was it in the early days that you particularly enjoyed? What I liked in general about the statistics, so I studied statistics in Munich, yes. was that it was very applied. In the second or third semester, we already started learning like R and doing some smaller analysis. 
Well, for example, in the third semester also we had a project where we had to give a presentation in the end, work with real data. And this really got me hooked, this immediate contact with problems to work on. So you immediately see like the things that you learn that you can apply them and use them. So in the beginning was obviously some simple stuff like descriptive statistics, creating figures, plots for the presentations. But later on, we also worked on bigger projects. This was really fun for me to have this application early in the beginning already. Definitely. And what are your favorite projects or problems that you got to work on in those early days? For example, in, in my master's, we have this course, which is called consulting. The concept is that you have a project partner who has a, can be a company or a researcher who has a data set and a question. And then you collaborate with the project partner to answer the question using some data analysis. And I had data from an online game. And the question was, so this was an online game where you could build big teams or like plants or something. And the question was, and this could be like three to, I don't know, 60 players or so. And the question was, what, what did you have to do to gain power or status in this team? And so I got data from this online game and could analyze what influences whether you will gain status or power in this team. And we did also a comparison across many countries because this game was played in, in different countries and did a comparison if there's different effects, for example, whether you trade a lot of resources within your team. So the goal was there's, of course, like a big map and you have resources you could mine and you could attack other teams. And like the factors we looked at were, for example, how much you traded within a team, how much you supported them in when you were fighting against other teams, and how these factors influence whether you gain status or power in a team and how these factors different countries. Uh, this was a really fun project. The first project also where I had bigger data, I would say, like a few gigabytes. Yeah, this was more memorable project. That's awesome. That would have been such interesting study to get into. Did you end up applying any of the findings yourself? <laughs> no, not like uh, in, in the team, how, to, how I gained power or status. No, not really. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think the setting yeah, no, was very like uh, um, artificial kind of. In Obviously, the research question was also like maybe if it applies also in other kind of teams, like in companies. But of course, like I have to say as a good statistician, like the analysis is well for the setting of the game, first of all. And then if you want to draw other conclusions, you have to support it with other arguments, whether it applies to yeah. companies, for example. And what has your career looked like since the, the master's? First, I want to still stay a little bit in my studies. So I already started working during my studies. So there's the oh, statistical nice. consulting unit in, at the university where I worked really early on. And this was really valuable for me because I got in contact with so many different research projects. So the idea of this consulting unit was that uh, researchers, but also companies could come with the data and the problem and ask for help. And we always coupled like a student and one more senior researcher. And they both helped one of the clients. And they got in contact with like lots and lots of projects. So I think this really helped me a lot in like getting a good start already with my data science career, I would say, because we, I just got a, such a great sample of different projects to work on. So it, it starts with smaller data sets from researchers. I think there was one who studied whether you should like when a cow gets pregnant and they usually like you stop 
milking it so that it remains healthy. But she asked like whether maybe it makes sense to even during pregnancy to to still milk a cow. Maybe it's better. And they measured the fat of the cow at the back and stuff like this to answer the research question. And another project was completely different. For example, where we built a rent index for a small city in Germany. So this where we predict the average rent for based on how big the flat or houses, where it's located, what year it was built in, what kind of heating it has, and so on, which is then officially used in for citizens. So they can use this tool in the end and ask, like, am I paying too much rent? Or if you're a landlord, am I, like, can I uh, ask for more money? And even got, like, uh, in, into the newspaper, like, just a very small local newspaper, but it was kind of a fun project. Okay, then your question was for what I did after my studies. But that's great to be applying from online games to cows in agriculture, then to rents. That also matched my kind of, well, what I wanted in the beginning, that to play on different fields and don't have to decide that I only want to work on projects for, I don't know, rent index or something. So I'm still in the position where I can say, hey, you can, I have just this very general toolbox, which can be applied in many different industries or research fields also. And the cool thing is that you always, I mean, you go there and you're kind of naive because you don't know much about the field, but you get to work with the data, you have to ask a lot of questions, and you get to learn a bit about that field. And I think that's very exciting. Really exciting. And what did you learn from the senior researchers that you were working with? Because I assume in this mm -hmm. case, you were the junior one in the pair that yeah. went to a company. Yes. What type of things did you learn from the seniors? That was very interesting. So the structure was always that we, as a client, if you wanted some consulting, you would submit a form where you describe your problem. Sometimes, so, and then we get this in the team meeting, which just they get this distributed to the project. And then we had a first meeting with, with the, the client, uh, one senior researcher and one student and discuss what they really want because sometimes you could read it from the form but sometimes you couldn't understand what they like really want so what what the research question is and so on and then we had this first meeting it was super interesting to see like if you have a really experienced researcher they listen to it and like immediately understand or could extract like the from a few sentences what they are really after like some kind of pattern matching to understand what they really need, what kind of analysis they want or need, and which I couldn't do, of course, with my limited experience. But I saw that they, with a lot of experience, have this pattern matching mechanic in their head where they just yes. see or could deduct what kind of uh, problem they have. This was my... And were they able to provide any insights into how they developed that in a conscious way? Or was it purely from exposure to lots of projects? I never asked. So my, my theory is that it's exposure to a lot of projects and also like the implicit flow or the flow between if you're a senior researcher and, and you're a couple. Or if you start as a student and uh, lots of projects and you have always the senior researcher, then you just learn a lot like implicitly just by being in the same meeting and seeing how they come to the conclusion. But, but I think, yeah, it's mostly the, also the exposure to many, many different projects. Yeah, no, that's great. That makes excellent sense. And do you think that that's a good program for students? Well, I guess for students, maybe universities and companies, do you see something where everyone was benefiting through the process? Yes, I think so. So for me as a student, it was extremely beneficial because I learned so much I, I couldn't have learned in another way because uh, I started in my third bachelor semester, which was kind of early. No, it, 
year uh, no semester four i think but still it was kind of early because i didn't know enough already so i started with the very simple project but but it was really important for me to be there because i learned so much but it's also very beneficial for the clients of course because it was a unit in the university it was set up in such a way that it was free for other researchers from the same university so i think they got like nine hours of consulting for free so this is of course very valuable for them because this, these are, were mostly for example master students who came from a different field maybe sociology or so who had just a little bit of statistics and then they're confronted with maybe a more difficult analysis or data project in their master thesis or maybe also in their PhD and then they are kind of struggling how to continue with their project and then they can just go to the statistical consulting unit at the university and ask for help and what we provided was more help for so they can help themselves so we just gave them hints or tell them like what software they could use what type of model would be meaningful or what type of analysis would be meaningful there but there were also bigger projects with companies and yeah i hope it was also helpful for them <laughs> i think so yeah that sounds like a really great experience maybe a good model to adopt for other people because it sounds really excellent and from there what did you go into next yeah afterwards so i was in munich for my whole life so I decided it's time to go someplace else. And so we started, my girlfriend and I, we started looking for other places to go. And she applied to a PhD program in Zurich. So we went to Zurich and I started looking for jobs there. And then I ended up at a fintech startup with a role as a junior data scientist and where I worked for a year. And then afterwards, two years for in a more classical statistician job in the medical industry, again, switching industries quite a lot. And afterwards, we went back to Munich, where I'm doing my PhD currently. Very nice. And what were the types of problems that you worked on at the fintech? I can't go much into details, but the general um, things I worked on was, so this is a startup which works on providing a, a banking app. So personal use where you can connect your bank accounts and just have an overview of all your accounts and use it like you would use your banking app. But it's, you could like connect multiple accounts and so on. And as I said, I worked there as a data scientist. So I kind of had, I would say, two roles. One was working on like features for the app. For example, one of the features is that like financial transactions are automatically classified into different categories. That's a project I worked on. And the other type of projects I worked on were more like these ad hoc analysis, like how many users we have and things like this. So, and also I found this distinction between the two very interesting because they require a very different set of collaboration, I would say. Because for this first type, you have to, let's say the easier part is if you have like these ad hoc analysis. So the, the end project, product is maybe like this a few numbers or a chart and then you can provide this but if you build something that should be part of the product you always have to think about okay how do we integrate it into the product you have to work closely together with engineers who then implement it also i think this is a very uh, interesting uh, to kind of have these two problems where you apply maybe similar methods but the process is very different yeah, and it's interesting to have the experience of working on both sides. What did you learn or what skills did you develop while in your time at that company? 
So I think I benefited a lot from having contact with lots and lots of software engineers. So I think it greatly improved my skill set and my views on software engineering. So really solidified my use of version control, made me more better in writing unit tests and just discovering lots of tools. It's just these little things like um, when I use Git now, it's just a few commands that I learned from software engineers, which I wouldn't have discovered on my own and just looking at things through the software engineering lens because my education was statistics where we do have a little bit of software, but it's not too much. So I gained a lot from um, working with the engineers who have a very different education. But I think like you need these both components for if you want to be a data scientist. So this was uh, really beneficial for me. Really good. That's excellent. And then moving into, you said, more traditional statistical consultant. Yeah. What was that role like? So the second job was uh, in medical research. It was a very small foundation, I think like 12 people or so, but with a very good portion of statisticians. So I think we were like five statisticians or so. And I also had multiple hats on because it's such a small uh, organization. One was obviously the doing like work of a statistician, which included writing papers together with rheumatologists. And the other jobs were more like, um, because we could also collected data. So we had, uh, they have a, an online tool where they collect patient data and also from doctors for patients with uh, rheumatic diseases. And that's also the data we ended up analyzing. And one of my jobs was also to help with continued development of the database or like the, the web interface. So I didn't work directly on like programming it, but working through it, being the link to the uh, IT company that did the development on the online database. Yeah, so this job was more yeah traditional because it didn't use any like machine learning or so, but because it's medical research, there it's well more like the linear models and stuff like this, which you would use for doing the analysis. That makes sense. And what type of analysis were you doing? So the type of analysis I did there was uh, we had patients with spondyl arthritis, and these patients, or, or what can happen with this disease if you have it for a long time that there's between the spine joints that you kind of grow extra bone and which renders the spine less, well, you cannot bend it much and can render it, that you cannot move it much. And we analyze medication, which is known to help with the disease. So it lowers your inflammation, which is also the source probably why your spine grows this extra bone. And the research question was, does this medication also help against the bone? bone growth in the spine and we did like predictive modeling for generalized additive model for whether the spine is also affected by the medication so this was kind of the, the analysis we did that's great and then did you enjoy doing that work yes it was very interesting and very different from my other jobs so the data we had is from this database and well a lot of time was spent on filtering the correct patients because we needed to detect whether there's like a progression in the spine with like additional bone growth. The, we had to have x-rays which were labeled by specialists. So because they had to give, had to look at each of the joints and say uh, like give a number between zero and three, how much additional bone there is, or maybe there's none. And so we were limited by who has an x-ray, then we needed at least a, a, a certain amount of time points where the patients had to be at the doctors. So because this is like an observational study, this makes the analysis so much harder and you have to think about so many things, like if you maybe exclude some patients that you shouldn't exclude and how like causally you can do the interpretation. 
and which variables you are not allowed to include from certain time points, how long you can or should wait before you can expect medication to work. So these, like a lot of little questions, which takes on a long time to get the analysis right. This was yeah, a very interesting experience. Also, really? another thing is that sometimes the database, like the questionnaires change. So maybe there's a new questionnaire which replaces an old one. And then you have to be careful to reflect this. So then you, you do some kind of mapping for your data that they, well, it's kind of consistent for your model. So yeah, that very difficult work. Indeed. And how many people were helping you with uh, labeling data? So uh, fortunately, this, this uh, was already labeled uh, when I came there. So this was outsourced. And I think there were, uh, there were two people labeling the data to external experts. And yeah, this is also naively, you would think, ah, yeah, the experts label it and then it's perfect. But uh, of course it isn't. So we also looked at things like um, how much would be, so we had some overlap between, so no, actually both labelers labeled all of the images. So we could do some analysis how, how good the agreement is. And it's, of course, it's not perfect because sometimes they like a complete different uh, interpretation of the results. So one might say, oh, it's completely like bone. The other would say, no, it's uh, from a different disease, something. So it's like a zero on the other hand, like the maximum count almost. Or do you have some slight differences between the labelers and you have to kind of get a good um we reported, of course, how much they agreed, but I also have to think about like uh, how good is the data then in the end. But it's a really difficult issue, this uh, labeling, So as I found out when, when working closer with this. Oh, yeah. I've definitely had um, a fair number of traumatic experiences with, <laughs> with uh, data that gets labeled manually. And yeah, sometimes by experts, sometimes not. And there's always issues. So the fact that you had that it was um, labeled by multiple people and that they were experts, I think that's a really good way to do yeah. it. And do you have any other recommendations on uh, labeling data? Yeah, so I think for other projects, what we also had where we did labeling for um, rheumatoid arthritis where you would label the, the hand images and there you for the labeling you say how much the bones and the fingers for example are eroded by the disease and oh. we had like continuous labeling by um, sometimes by students sometimes by doctors and we would always compare sometimes give the student the same images they already labeled but at some oh. later point so you could uh, measure yes. things like interrater like reliability so because sometimes you see the same images but would give a different rating so this is one thing you can do that you give the same items again to the same labeler obviously not directly after but maybe a few days later or so or a few months later depending on your project and just to see how much they agree with themselves so and also how much two raters agree between each other then you just get a feeling for how difficult it is or maybe you can see or if like the best for you is if you have multiple labelers so you can compare them and see how consistent they are but obviously it's expensive to do this like the more you do it the more you have to pay people of course and if you instead of labeling your data once you do it i don't know three times then of course three times is costly maybe yeah but i think you should at least have a little bit of these like overlaps or have two people label the same data so you just are not blind to the quality of your data because it's easy to just if it's a numbers like it's in some extra sheets csv or database it's just the numbers and they look like they are right because they're, i mean they're just binary coded numbers and they look so clean and, and perfect but you always have to look at the process and maybe they are not as close to the ground truth as you want it to be yes indeed that's good tips thank you and after that that you decided to do your phd 
Yeah, kind of during that job, I would say, because I worked uh, part-time only. So uh, in the beginning, 80%, later 60%, meaning I had uh, first one day off and later two days off, which like since this was from the beginning. So when, when we negotiated the contract and I took this as a, an opportunity to have first uh, one day of learning new stuff. Uh, I started with mm-hmm. learning about, I think I took a deep learning course in the beginning and also later did uh, some deep learning projects. But then I came into reading papers for interpretable machine learning. So I started with the line paper, which is about building local models to approximate your complex machine learning model and for explaining individual predictions. And then I wanted to learn more and I didn't find any good resource on it. I was hoping for maybe I will find a book or a good blog post or whatever, but it turned out I didn't find anything. So I started collecting these things like these papers and and writing about them which later turned out to be the book and yeah then used like this r package book down which lets you build a ebook but also a website so i started writing it down like all what i learned during my 20 percent free time so also my my girlfriend finished her phd so i already had to start thinking about what i want to do after she finished whether we want to stay go someplace else and the two options were at this point were for me maybe freelancing or doing a PhD. And since I was already writing the book, I thought, yeah, it might make sense to do a PhD because it's very close already to reading the paper, writing stuff down. And I enjoyed it at this point. So this was my decision then to do a PhD. Wow. That's a great way to get into it. Yeah, starting it with 20% time, following your curiosity, and then coming to the realization to say, like, this is an area that there's not much out there. Mm-hmm. I might as well dive dive into it. That's excellent. So tell me about the process of putting the book together. So it started with a few chapters that I wrote. With, where I still kept the repository where I wrote it in private. At some point, I thought I always planned to also publish it so others could use it. And at some point, I had, I don't know, five chapters or so, and I decided, and I also had the GitHub pages, I published the website, and I just put it out on Twitter, hey, I'm writing a, like a small book about interpretable machine learning. Here's the like my, my first release, my in-progress version. And I got really great feedback that people liked it already, which motivated me a lot to continue writing the chapters, which is, uh, I think, very different from how books are written traditionally, or you just yes. start writing and then you have some internal reviewers who would give you feedback and in the end you have a finished product and then release it. And for this book, I started small, already released something which was far away from perfect, but it's it was already useful to some people. So this motivated me to keep going and I continued chapter after chapter and after each chapter, I would publish it and announce on Twitter, hey, I wrote a new chapter, you can have a look. And I always got feedback and some people um, fixed like typos on GitHub was really unexpected for me. But like one benefit of having everything open so people also can clone the whole project of my whole book and play around with the code and stuff. So this is also, I guess, very uh, different from traditional publishing. And very. yeah, <laughs> at some point I put it on LeanPub. At this point, then I had uh, my web page and then the in-progress version of LeanPub because LeanPub is a like a bookstore, but also publishing tool where you can publish in-progress books. So, and, and you have like a slider where you can say how much percentage of the book is done. And I put like, I don't know, 30% in the beginning and push it a little further each time. At some point I said, okay, now it's 100%. And some time later, I also published a print version. So now there are kind of free versions of the book, but I'm still continuing writing the book. And what were the original five chapters? 
I think so. One of the first chapters was Lime. So for the explaining individual predictions, I'm not so sure, but I think partially dependence plot was also one of the first chapters. This is a model agnostic technique, meaning you can apply to neural networks, but also to, it doesn't make sense with linear models, but with trees or random forests, whatever. And it will show you the average effect one of your input features has on the prediction. And I think like feature importance was also one of the earlier chapters, which gives you a ranking how important each of the features was for the predictive power of your model. And the rough idea behind it is that you shuffle one of the features, which destroys the information it has. And then you do the predictions again and observe how much, the, for example, accuracy drops. And then this is kind of your importance value. Yeah, these were the early chapters. Also, the, the focus of the book is more on model agnostic methods. So methods that you yes. can apply to any model because I wanted to start with those. I think those are very useful because they are more timeless than the other methods that rely on a certain method. Because, for example, if you have a method that only works for XGBoost, which is very popular at the moment, but maybe it's not, maybe in five years there's a different method that's very popular, then you need another method for doing the interpretations, but not with model agnostic methods. But that said, I'm now adding a bit of these model-specific methods as well. So for I started now for deep learning to add a few more chapters specific for deep learning models. Excellent. That's great. And why do you think it was... Because obviously the book has been really popular. Personally, I know that it's come up in, in conversations quite a few times. People know about it. People are talking about it. People are asking about a resource like this. Why do you think it was so timely? Like, Why is interpretable machine learning needed now? Good question. So... Yeah, one, one thing was obviously that there wasn't much material out there. So being early, the, the bonus of being early for the book. Then I think also that, I mean, there's this hype of machine learning or especially deep learning since uh, 2012, which I always found a bit funny because, uh, well, machine learning already worked before that. Obviously not as well for images and text, but for like the, these more classical settings or business type settings where you have, uh, I don't know, an Excel sheet or so. You always could apply random forest and well before 2012. But I think this hype of deep learning also pushed other types of like the quote unquote uh, traditional machine learning further and more people are trying it out. And what I often observe is that people try it out and then like, oh, we don't understand the model. What, what does it do? And so often it naturally arises the question like, how can we do some interpretation? Are there any methods where we can learn what the or understand what the model does? I think there's this need to explain or this yeah, desire to explain what the models does, which often comes from the data scientists themselves. So for just some doing some debugging. So for example, when I did uh, Kaggle competitions, so a while back, like six or seven years, I wasn't too successful. One of my favorite algorithms was Random Forest. And one of the reasons being because you get like a feature importance ranking out of it, because I was always interested in learning a bit more about the problem, not only having a black box that works well, but understanding what were the most important features that for predicting the outcome. So yeah, I think that's the source of interest for this topic. And yeah, the other thing, it's just speculation, but I think like because I made the book so open and for free, so they, they can always visit the web page and the ebook, you can pay for it, but you don't have to. So this probably helps to at least push the book more than yeah, if I wouldn't have it open. Yeah, definitely. And do you think that most data scientists 
are learning interpretability in the courses that they're doing, whether online or university? Do you think that this topic is covered usually? And if so, how well? The courses I had didn't cover it much. So, of course, for the Random Forest chapter that I learned in my machine learning course at university, there was this like a few slides on feature importance, but I don't recall really learning about these techniques. And also, I, I took a few online courses at Coursera where I didn't stumble upon any of the interpretation methods. So I think also in, in the courses, there might still be, be a gap, which is now probably filling slowly. But yeah. So we, for example, at university now, my professor is now adding also a lecture on interpretable machine learning. Great. I share your passion for random forest and for the same reason. I found that I could get so much information mm -hmm. out, of, out of the random forest. And obviously, yeah, feature importance being one of them. There's also the local feature importance that it gives it you at a row level. And there's obviously interesting things that you can do with the proximity matrix. It's not between... One thing I learned the hard way is that you shouldn't fall too much in love with one of the well, with your favorite algorithms. Because I, I uh, in Kaggle competition, <laughs> competition, I always used random forests. And there was this one competition, I think it was about detecting dark matter. So there was simulated data and from like images, like um, galaxies. And if you have some dark matter, then the image of the galaxy behind the dark matter would be a bit distorted. It's like a way for detecting dark matter. And I obviously, because I was too much in love with random forests, I applied random forests and they performed really poorly. But I teamed up with someone else who had a completely different approach. And then I think we had a, ended up in a top 10%, but it was not thanks to, not thanks to me. Yeah. So this is also a trap you can fall into. Just like apply your hammer to any problem, but uh, yeah. <laughs> not see the range of solutions that you should look at. Very wise words. So true. So true. I quick poll at work around, I picked one of the topics in your book. So under the model agnostic methods, one of the ones you mentioned before is the partial dependence plots. And at work, we're having lunch with a data scientist and I asked him, I said, oh, do you guys know about partial dependency plots? And um, none of them knew. <laughs> I was okay. like, oh, yeah, this is, and obviously it's one of the interpretable methods that has been around for some time. Is mm -hmm. that right? Yeah, it's quite old, I think. I'm not sure about the date, but yeah, one of the oldest before the yeah. uh, machine learning hype, yeah. Correct. Yeah, which is why I picked it. I thought it was one of the one of the older ones, and yeah. I was surprised. But then when we started talking about interpretability, they were so eager to learn. Mm -hmm. So I was like, anyway, obviously pointed them directly at your book, and they're, they're all enjoying it now, yeah. which is really good. And looking at the same or in the same model agnostic uh, methods, can you tell us about the accumulated local effects plots? Mm -hmm. So I'll start with the partial dependence plot because then it's, a, it's easier to transition to the accumulated local effects. So partial dependence plot, I, the idea is actually quite simple, I would say. So the goal is to analyze how one feature changes a prediction. Obviously, your model depends on all of the features, so you have to remove the effect of the other features and the condense only the effect of one of the features. So the idea of partial dependence plot is that you pick one of your features, then you define a grid over the feature, so from minimum to maximum, maybe, I don't know, 20 values of that feature, and then you take each of the values and um, like overwrite in your data set all for this particular feature, you start like putting the minimum value of that feature in and just check what the model predicts then. So it's kind of you force all of your data points to have the same value. And this you do for all of the grid values and, and observe like how on average the prediction changes. 
uh, this method, or the so that's main idea behind partial dependence plot. But this um, has one challenge or one problem, and that's when features are correlated. So if you have two features, let's say uh, the height of a person and the weight, they obviously strongly correlated. And then you, I don't know, you have like a two meter person in your data set and you want to look at the effect of the weight on whatever it is you want to predict. And then you start with a weight, I don't know, with 50 kilogram. And then you insert the, this 50 kilogram into each data point. But you also do this for the two meter person, which is unrealistic data point. But you use it to create this plot. So you create new points, which are unrealistic and use this to describe what your model does, but, but that's a point that's not interesting to you. So then this can bias your plots and you also don't know in which way it will bias because this is an area where you now make a prediction with the model, but the model has never seen data for this type of person or this type of data, which might even be like physically impossible. So it's not clear what your model will do in this area. And accumulated local effect plots try to solve this issue of um, using unrealistic data points. So accumulated local effects, or in short, AL, also work for correlated features. And the idea is that you you also cut your features. Let's again look at the weight, for example. You cut the weight into intervals. In each interval, you slightly shift the data points to the left of the interval and to the right, and just observe in this small interval how the prediction will change. And then you can, from this, construct a plot which tells you the feature effect. And by this, you achieve both that you isolate the effect from this single feature, but also because you only do like a local changes or local manipulation of the feature, you don't have this extrapolation issue like partial dependence plots have. I would highly recommend using this if you have correlated features, which you often have. Indeed. Yes, that's excellent. And I also would like to ask you about the example-based explanations. Can you tell us a little bit about those? Yeah, so this was a, could have also take this whole chapter or these chapters under example based and move them to model agnostic explanations because they're basically also model agnostic explanations. But the outcome, why I made, gave them their own section is because the result is not like a plot or a number, but a data point. So for example, for if you look at influential instances that which tell you how much a data point influenced a certain prediction, this is like looking back to the, really to the training of the model. Then the, it's actually the other way around. You have a prediction and you want to have that, a ranking of the top 10 data points that influence the prediction for this data point to see like um, what is your model basing the prediction on. And then you get back as a result these data points. And so this types of method are a bit different from the ones where you get like just a importance number or a effect plot. And also this gives you a few more challenges because if you have like a few thousand features, then you have to find a way to visualize them or just report them in a way that makes sense or you can actually look through to get an understanding. Yeah, that's really good. And what are some of the packages that are available for people to do interpretable ML with? Yeah, so in, in R, I, I, well, I have to advertise my own package, of course. <laughs> no, I, in R, I wrote a package uh, called IML, which implements a few of the model agnostic chapters uh, methods. Then for Lime, for example, there's an R implementation and also Python implementation. Then there's a lot of packages that also implement like the, some individual methods. For example, there's a package for AL plots, which, or for AL, these uh, effect plots, which is called AL plot and R. I don't think there's a Python implementation of it. Then there are other bigger projects that implement like a lot of functions. 
for example, Dalek, which is also an R package, covers a lot of uh, different methods. In Python, you have the Skater package, the Eli 5 package. So there's, it's just beginning, I would say, but uh, there's already packages you can try out. Awesome. That's great. And tell me about the interpretability in deep learning. What are you finding there? Or what are the, some of the recent developments? So uh, first we have to talk like what makes deep learning different. Yes. So first of all, of course, the model agnostic methods you can apply, at least if you use deep learning for traditional, or let's say like more these Excel type of data, which often doesn't make sense because there uh, you have good performance of random forests or boosting. So one difference is that you use deep learning mostly for data with like uh, some spatial structure like images or text and word like neighboring pixel matter and uh, neighboring words matter. This is one reason that the methods are a bit different from the other methods. And the other reason is that you have, usually have a gradient you can work with. So you can have more um, well, efficient methods and because you can use that gradient and all the architectures, architectures usually give you the gradient. So that being said, um, what can you do? And one thing you can do is try to understand what the neural network does, or how it works on the inside. And these are the images a lot of people might already have seen, these uh, feature visualizations, where you try to find the input that maximizes the activation of a certain unit of the network, for example, of a neuron or maybe a whole convolutional layer. Or So these are like these, which look like hallucinations, where you might then kind of try to interpret what, what you see on the image, which might be like, a I don't know, a dog snout or a daisy or whatever. This is one way of trying to understand what the network does. Other techniques try to, which I would call like feature attribution, they try to explain individual predictions, just like saliency maps. There are like dozens of different algorithms to do this. Some work with the gradient, some with occlusion, and for each there are many, many different flavors, and they all give you this. So you have some maybe some input image, and then you want to highlight the parts the network is looking at for doing the prediction. Maybe it's some image, and you get a prediction that it's a dog, and you want to know which parts of the image contributed to the dog prediction or dog classification. Yeah, that's also a chapter I'm still, I'm still working on, but there's so many different methods. So it's really drowning in papers that have slightly different methods for the same thing. Yeah. And then wow. there, which also goes more in the direction of feature visualizations. These are techniques that try to learn about more the concepts or examine the concept that the neural networks learned. Concept activation vectors, for example, there's a paper about that where you can provide some data and, and learn like whether the neural network used certain a certain concept. This could be like, I don't know, gender or whether or also simpler concept like stripes, uh, whether it relied on detecting some stripes or so for a certain prediction. That is awesome. And what is your process to go through the literature and then put it into shape to then mm -hmm. feed it into the book? I think one of the first Struggles is always on which level do I do the aggregation? So do I lump all of the methods together and just give an overview? How deep do I dive into single methods or do I just aggregate all of the, for example, feature attribution? I could like to pick two methods and describe those in detail. Or I could have one chapter where I try to describe all of them and put them in a, like a common framework or so. So this is one of the first difficult things to do, I would say. 
And mm. to come up with that, I well, I randomly read a lot of papers, a lot of blog posts. And during reading, I just dump a lot of notes into the markdown file I'm writing and then try to structure the knowledge for me a bit. What also helps a lot is just getting away from the research from the papers and going out for a walk and just thinking about like, how would I structure this or how do the pieces fit together? Should one method have its own chapter or do I have build more of an overview? So this is uh, like stretch this process a bit so that I have more time to think about it. And if I still like the idea a week later, then I'm happy with the structure. So it's uh, going back and forth, like reading, uh, trying to think of like putting pieces together in my head and then reading again a bit more. That's a really good rule that you just mentioned around if you make a decision and then a week later you're still happy with it. It's a good way to make sure that that's going to stick. That's excellent. Another thing that I really enjoyed in your book, which might be a, a bit of a random one, was the images, the drawings. I thought they were so clear, so great, so friendly. How did those come about? Like the images of the big picture, for example. There's, oh, there's one where you had the different layers from the world. I remember too, like data, <laughs> black box models of interpretability, interpretability methods, and then how that feeds humans. <laughs> ah, yeah. Yeah, sometimes I think it's easier to communicate with like images, that, and I'm not good at building those with photoshop or anything so i just hand draw them even if i'm not like I'm really good at it but i think it doesn't matter too much so i can express much more what i want to express when i just draw it sometimes and also it's very enjoyable to just like draw it and publish it even if it's not perfect but well at least you like it <laughs> so that's a good thing i do and, um, i really do <laughs> it helps me a lot to explain things in a well simple drawing yeah, I also started doing this for presentations because you always get this clean bullet point presentations, but sometimes it's just like a badly drawn comic is sometimes worth a thousand times the bullet points. Oh, yes. So I started doing this a lot more. Also got uh, got an iPad um, for drawing, which is probably a bit overpowered, but uh, it's a lot of fun. I didn't expect you to say that you do the drawings yourself. I think that's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, only the yeah, cover yeah. I didn't draw. It was a good friend of mine. But yeah, for these like small, I'm not sure what to call them, like these comics or infographics, whatever. Yeah, those I draw myself. Awesome. Well done. That's great. And how's the PhD going? Yeah, so I'm now uh, one year and a half and a bit more in. Always difficult to say, I guess. So the first year I um, focused mainly on doing some this kind of consolidation by writing the book, by writing the, the R package. And now I'm in the phase where I have to find my own research topics, still an ongoing process to see like what I want to specialize in. And also yeah, a bit hard for me because I like more this overview type of work. So like writing the book and uh, doing chapters on very different methods. I mean, obviously, it's still in the, the niche of uh, interpretable machine learning. Yeah, but if you do research, then you have to dive deep into something. And yeah, so I'm still working on this to find my own research direction. But yeah, Do you have any inklings? So I uh, submitted a paper for a workshop, which is about measuring the complexity of a model. So this, these measures that we proposed are about measuring how much interactions between features the, the model um, works with. So, for example, a linear model would have zero interactions, but like a, models like a random forest can cover quite a lot of a lot of the prediction function or the variance of the prediction function with with interactions between the features, which makes the interpretation a lot harder because then if you 
plot something like a partial dependence plot or also accumulated local effect plot, then because these are always averages and the more interactions you have, the wilder the individual curves would be. So these measures help you kind of to decide also how good these post-hoc interpretation methods will work on your model. So this is one direction we are kind of looking in, into. Very good. Have you done any other papers around other possible directions? So my main projects, but other researchers from our group, and one paper we have is, for example, on feature importance, especially on individual feature importance where you not, because feature importance values are also aggregate, like mean aggregations of all of your data points, but you can also look at the feature importance for individual data points, for example, or aggregations or like subgroups of them. So this was a paper about that, which was at ECML, so European Conference for Machine Learning last year. That's great. Tell me what, well, sort of a, a high level or maybe overview question, what excites you most about the future of interpretability? Where do you see this going? So it's still a young field. It's getting crowded, I would say. So lots and lots of papers. And a big, I think, going from here is now doing still this kind of consolidation work where I try to, do, to see which methods emerge as like a good status quo or good like first methods to use. For example, should you use partial dependence plot or should you use AL plots or to better understand what are the problems with each of the methods. So I think one direction we should be going is to really analyze or better understand the methods to solidify them or to better understand their weaknesses and to have like a tool set that you can actually recommend. So these and these methods are really good and this situation you can use this method. You should be careful with this method. Only in certain scenarios you can use them. I think that's a way to go. Yeah, one issue is obviously that we have also a lot, of, a lot of new methods coming up and you always have to decide is this now. How new is it really? Is it, how does it fit in with the already existing methods? Very, very true. And what would you like to do or what do you see yourself doing after the PhD? That's a good question. But while my current plans are to start something of my own, like doing like a consulting business, on which I already started uh, already a bit on the side of my PhD, but doing consulting on the interpretable machine learning, also a bit broader about like what, what can go wrong if you use machine learning. So like these best practices around machine learning. So that's my current plan. It's my plan since a year, so it's, uh, I guess, a good plan, or at least I'm still happy with it. Yeah, exactly. I like that rule, as I said before. That's really good. And do you see that taking form as a consulting company or as a product, as advisory? Do you have any early indications? So my plans are currently just like a starting out with just me, just a one-person consultancy, so more like or advising people or companies on the topic. Well, the product would also be nice, but I don't have anything currently in my mind. So probably more the consulting direction. Yeah, no, that sounds extremely, extremely interesting. Yeah, really, really, really good. This is just out of curiosity, but how do you structure your days and, and, and your weeks? As in, how do you maximize the impact of your time? You seem you're so productive. You know, like sometimes the most productive people, they don't feel like they're productive because they feel like they're taking what could be seen as long breaks, but it's actually long thinking time. So it's always sort of a tough question for people that are, are really productive because you seem like one of those people. Uh, how, how do you structure your weeks and mm -hmm. days? And yeah. Months? So, yeah, some, sometimes I also don't feel very productive. And um, I guess it's also OK because... Only doing things is sometimes like the difference between being busy and productive. So 
I think it's good to have also some thinking periods. So now, more concretely, how I'm structuring my days and weeks. I have like a to-do list on Trello. I don't know if you know Trello. It's like this board-like or Kanban board-like um, tool. I used it more, much more a few years back, and now I just use it a little bit, where I just capture some to-dos that I have to do. I also have like a list of my projects where I look at once a week, so just to know to keep them going and to write down to-dos if I have to do something to keep them moving. Yeah, I try to do, not do too much. So in the sense that I don't try to not get, get involved in too many projects so that I have more time for the projects I want to work on, for example, the book, my research. So I guess a big thing in my tool set is also saying no to a lot of things. And how do you pick which things to get involved with and which ones to say no? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I guess, yeah, for example, for... So I, I do a bit of teaching and also supervising master thesis, for example. And one filter for me is I, I only supervise topics that have something to do with interpretable machine learning. Since I'm like focusing a lot on, on this topic, so this is a good filter. So does it help me with this goal, like learning more about interpretability? That's a good filter for me to say whether I work on this or not. And also I just check against my current commitments if it makes sense to do another commitment. And then often the answer is no, that I already have too much on my plate. I mean, there's also this danger of like just doing this one thing and um, not growing in other areas. Or sometimes it can be useful to do something completely different. So I'm still trying to figure out how to incorporate this like little probability of doing something completely different or working on a different project. But currently, I'm still quite focused on interpretability. And I think that there's many, many, many people out there that are extremely glad and very <laughs> thankful that you are focused on it. So thank you so much for the book and for all the good work that you're doing. It's something that's so necessary where I personally see your work and the work in this space as the way that the machines teach us back, essentially mm -hmm. tell us back about, yeah. the, about the findings instead of us sort of blindly automating things obviously blindly is a bit of an exaggeration to make the point but as data scientists i think we can very easily fall into the trap of following the steps of you know playing preparing the data creating the model productionizing building an api for it and then getting it out and that automates the decision but we could have learned so much better by applying the interpretability approaches that like the ones that you described in your book and the ones that you're mm -hmm. working on and that's the way that we get knowledge from the machine back into us and we learn and get better from it so thank you thank you so much for the work you're that welcome. you do christoph it has been an absolute absolute blast a pleasure uh getting to speak with you thank you so much for taking the time thank you so much for the good work that you do. Obviously, many, many people out there are huge fans and we thank you uh, for your contribution to this very necessary uh, field that we need yeah. bright people like yourself doing this good work. So yeah. thank you so much for that. Thanks for the invitation. I enjoyed our conversation. It was absolutely brilliant. I wanted to tell you about the RMIT Online Masters of Data Science Strategy and Leadership. I was one of the industry advisors for this program. It's an online master's program and it covers both data science strategy and leadership and it has also a technical component. Highly, highly recommended for people wanting to get ahead. With the program, you can gain this advanced strategic leadership and data science capabilities required to influence executive leadership teams and deliver organization-wide solutions. For more information, visit online.rmit.edu. Dot AU.
that brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as Data Futurology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.